Uh, the KC Morning Show for you Tuesday. My friends, joining us for the first time on your KC Morning Show, it is Harvey K. He's an historian, a sociologist. This man is a professor of democracy. I mean, be honest, is there a better title? I don't think so. I don't think so. His latest is called FDR on Democracy, but he's written some of the best works on Thomas Paine. His collection called Take Hold of Our History, which is a radical history, by the way. Uh, I come back to that once every six months. This man has helped shape my political thought, and um, I uh, kind of fan a little bit. Not gonna lie to you. He's recently published an article on Josh Hawley, our junior senator from Missouri. It's called Josh Hawley Throws Challenge on Big Tech and the Left. He published that for Common Dreams. Full disclosure, I slid into Professor Harvey Kane's DMs and I said, sir, I'm a fan. Can we please talk on my show? And he... He said yes. So today on your KC Morning Show, you're going to listen to part one of my chat with Professor Harvey K. Do me a favor. Nominations are open for those pitch awards. Best local podcast. Baby. Try to run that back. A twofer for your KC Morning Show. Nominations are open. Go to pitchkc.com for information. Also, and I know I'm begging right now, but I got another call to arms for you. Calling in the KCMS banners. Would love to up those ratings. Maybe even a few more reviews. We're doing very well. Well, my friends like very well so let's tell these folks about it right we got a good thing who else has the professor of democracy on their morning show the answer is nobody nobody but us all right y'all that's all i got full show back in your feeds tomorrow but right now harvey k professor harvey k from university of wisconsin green bay a good day to be a kansas city india always we'll see you in the morning bye your enthusiasm honors me and excites me. I can tell you that. I really have been looking forward to this. First of all, I love your first name. I, I'd never heard the name Hartzell before, so it's it's fabulous. So it's a family name. I'm the third. My great-grandmother, she didn't have a name for my grandpa. Her midwife at the time said that he looks like a Hartzell. All we know is that it's Hebrew, but that's about it. Honestly, so oh, I'm still really? trying to, dis- I, still trying to discover that. that. <laughs> That's great. Also, as I said to you, I, I've been in Kansas City, but I haven't been in Kansas City since 1977. So at least my voice is carried there now. Well, I'm so happy that we've got you on the KC Airwaves. It's been a long time, too long. And now we got to work on getting you back in person. Let's get that hashtag started. Harvey K to KC. Let's get that started. I've been a fan of yours for a very long time. You've helped really develop my personal political thought an article you wrote and you may not even remember it but there was an article you wrote back in 2015 a critique of senator claire mccaskill from missouri you have a knack sir for for going in on missouri senators like you've just done recently with josh holly but back in 2015 you were making the claim for you know a social democracy and why it could work even in rural places like missouri and i'm someone who considers myself a you know democratic socialist if that's the label that we're putting on it today and i think you would probably consider yourself the same so just so you know as someone who currently lives in the heartland i just want you to know that that piece it still resonates with me actually can i tell you for a start I was supposed to co-author that with my 
older friend, Bill Moyers of TV and public affairs and Lyndon Johnson's administration. And I sent him a text or an email and I said, can you believe Claire McCaskill has the audacity to compare Bernie Sanders to Donald Trump and basically write them both off as extremists? I mean, talk about lack of memory, right? I mean, no sense of history at all to be when you could say that. And he said, let's write that. Start a draft. So I started drafting and I said, Bill, can you want to take over? And he goes, you know, I've got so much work to do. You're off to a good start. You do it. <laughs> so I did this. As I argue in there, it was shocking to me that any Democrat, they didn't even have to be a progressive Democrat, but that any Democrat would fail to realize that Bernie Sanders' campaign in 2016 was specifically to revive the FDR tradition in the Democratic Party and the left. And in fact, for what it's worth, I will tell you, I titled the piece, as you know, Social Democracy is 100% American. Yes. In part, because I do think that, look, I mean, I, I call myself a democratic socialist, but I wouldn't necessarily campaign as a democratic socialist. I would campaign as a social democrat. And in fact, if you look very closely, Bernie's campaign in 2016 and again in 2020 really were campaigns for social democracy, democratic socialism to the extent that it's reminiscent of, perhaps of Scandinavian democratic socialism, that kind of thing. But the point was that I couldn't believe that McCaskill had the audacity to say that. So I reviewed in the course of this short article, this piece, the fact that for a start, in many ways, the godfather of social democracy was actually the American revolutionary Thomas Paine, who wrote the pamphlet, of, well, he wrote Rights of Man in the 1790s, and even more importantly, regarding social democracy, agrarian justice. And in it, he says, basically, God made the earth for all to share. Therefore, those who monopolize land owe all the rest of us a payment, a tax, a rent. And all that money should be placed in a fund or a treasury. And out of that treasury, two things should be created. First of all, what we would now call social security for the elderly, regular payments to the elderly so they would not have to work. And the second set of payments would be for young people, that when a young person reaches the age of maturity, they should be given a sum of money to give them a start, to buy land, set up a business, get more education, whatever it might be. So this was really the beginning of social democracy. And that's in 1797, I think it was the year, 1796. And then if you go further and you look at the, the social movements that have made America better, have involved the struggle to make America freer, more equal, more democratic, to everything from bringing an end to slavery to empowering working people, you know, enabling women to vote, all of these things, every one of them touches on the heart of social democracy. But the best part about the best part about that is not just that there are these movements, it's also that the greatest figures in American history, as far as I'm concerned, at least, were, I don't know if I could call them democratic socialists because that has a 20th century sound to it, but they definitely were social democrats. So let's take not only Thomas Paine, but let's also take Abraham Lincoln. People don't even realize the degree to which Lincoln not only signs the Emancipation Proclamation, empowered by black slaves from the South who are literally moving as quickly as they can towards the Union lines, seeking to enlist in the struggle to defeat the Confederacy. He also signs the Homestead Act and the uh, Land Grant Act. And Land Grant Act is land controlled by the federal government were handed over to states to create state universities to enable at, at very low cost working men and women to attend higher education. And this is Lincoln. He's like, in some ways, he's the pioneering presidential social democrat, right? And then, of course, in the 20th century, 
Franklin Roosevelt rarely acknowledged, but he was not simply a liberal, which, by the way, in his mind, meant social democrat. He truly was creating the foundations of a social democratic America. And then on top of that, Lyndon Johnson, who, by the way, for my generation, will be forever scorned as having taken us deep into Vietnam. Nevertheless, if you look closely, for all of its failings, the Great Society, because it didn't do one thing that the Roosevelt years did, and that is it didn't create jobs. But look, voting rights, civil rights, uh, immigration reform, Medicare, Medicaid. The Senate in those years enacted environmental legislation, workplace legislation, which later is, strangely enough, turned into the Environmental Protection Agency and the Occupational Safety and Health Administration by, of all people, Richard Nixon, because <laughs> Nixon knew that Americans wanted social democracy. And he was a part of that generation of the 30s all the way through the 60s that for, for all of his, you know, sort of red baiting and anti-communism and all that, he was very much a part of, and he knew what his generation was prepared to do. Plus, I want to say one other thing so people really get this in their heads. We are the founding nation of public education. You can't get much more social democratic than to guarantee all young people from, you know, five years of age to 18 years of age, a full-scale education. That's what, that's social democracy. And we pioneered it. And now, of course, the argument or call for at least free community college and possibly more. So, I mean, we were this nation of a social democratic history. Whenever people talk about the things that are good about the United States, they're going to be talking about social democracy. Undeniably, it's stymied. For 45 years now, those social democratic achievements have been under full-scale assault by way of class war and culture war from above, which of course has been enabled by Republican conservatives and for all too many times, Democratic neoliberals, such as for decades, the likes of Joe Biden and, and the Clintons. Tells you, it tells you a lot about how the Democratic Party had decayed since the days of FDR and LBJ. And it's so wild to me because that piece was written back in 2015, but but what you're talking about now is so relevant to what you literally just wrote about with this piece on Josh Hawley, you know, this idea of social democracy and radical change being co-opted by bad actors here in Missouri just recently. We passed Medicaid expansion, and that doesn't get passed in Missouri without rural voters who also agreed that they want their health care. And I bet a bunch of those same folks would identify themselves as Republican and voted for Josh Hawley. By the way, and yeah. just to just to show you how not unusual Missouri is in that respect, think about Florida with Ron DeSantis as governor. Talk about reactionary fools. The fact is that they, at the same time, I guess they reelected him. They also voted for the, what, the 15, am I right? The $15 right, yes, minimum wage. They raised the minimum wage, but yeah. also reelected DeSantis. I mean, Americans are fundamentally they want social democracy. They want it. They want, for example, they want Medicare for all. It may not be the first thing on their list that the, as the reason for, for how they vote, but they have in innumerable times expressed by way of polling and even in certain cases, states around the country, a desire, an aspiration to secure universal health care. And I'll just tell everyone that in the 1930s and 40s, when Roosevelt was president, when he signed into law the Social Security Act, he originally wanted universal health care as part of the Social Security Act. And it was blocked, not simply by big business that, though he could have overwhelmed that, I believe, it's that the American Medical Association stood staunchly opposed to Social Security, including health care. Then in 1944, 1943, it began, he began to survey or to poll the American people, asking them, what do they want after the war? And he wasn't confident he'd be able to accomplish it all, but he wanted the record to show it. He wanted to feel confident about what he was about to do. And that is, he asked Americans, what do you want after the war? And which basically 
basically turned into what he called the Economic Bill of Rights, because in 1943 and 44, 85% of Americans wanted guaranteed health care for all Americans. And that included Republicans as well as the obvious Democrats. So the fact is that, I mean, Americans have long wanted universal health care. And to think about the fact that today we should be surprised at any time that the polls show otherwise would be crazy because we've lost touch with much of what FDR was pursuing. But that doesn't mean Americans don't have the, an understanding of what is needed to make a better or great society. So the book is called The Tyranny of Big Tech. That's a new one from Josh Hawley. And you, Professor K, you dug into this thing. And what you found was pretty... Um pretty spectacular. Obviously, everyone who's going to hear this knows that Josh Hawley is not is not a dummy. OK, I mean, he he's extremely well educated. You know, he went to undergraduate school at Stanford. He went to Yale Law School. Um, along the way, he had mentors who were actually pretty liberal figures, including uh, a professor out of Stanford named David Kennedy. And even for his made his last major political campaign running for, for the U.S. Senate in Missouri. I mean, Danforth is, is a Republican, the former Senator Danforth, but he was never considered one of the reactionary senators in the Republican Party. And he helped, literally helped Hawley pursue the uh, the Senate seat. He's not a dummy. He knows how to he knows how to take advantage of people and he knows what may well be on people's minds. Now, here's the thing. Obviously, he turned out to be one of the, the, the really bad guys regarding the insurrection in, in Washington, D.C. I mean, he not not only said he was going to challenge the outcome of the Electoral College, but then on that day when he's entering the Senate or the, you know, he's entering Congress, not the Senate, he passes by the crowds that have now moved down towards the Capitol building and he gives them the, the fist pump, which is to encourage them in whatever their mood might be, as far as I'm concerned. And of course, he goes in and he tries to, to undermine the proceedings. And of course, we know what happens. The Congress, the Capitol building is literally assaulted. It's one of the ugliest days of modern American history. Probably. Yeah, I mean, there's no other way of putting it. So here's Hawley, okay, this U.S. senator who's apparently, right, the puppet or at least the, the main one of the main allies of Trump in his ambitions to either have that election overturned or with the idea that he's going to run again and the likes of Hawley are going to help him achieve that. Well, think about this. Hawley doesn't know if Trump is going to run or not, but Hawley wants to be president. I'm absolutely convinced of it, okay? He's got the trajectory. You know, he's a tall, he's not a bad looking guy. He's smart, well educated comes out of the heartland, as we know, break from New York and California kind of politics. So it is the case that uh, we know Holy's aspirations and ambitions. Now, here's the thing. I picked up this book that he brought out this spring, The Tyranny of Big Tech. And I thought, wow, this, this is strange. I knew Hawley was always trying to present himself as a populist, but now he was coming out as a, as a primary antagonist to the likes of, you know, Jeff Bezos and Amazon, you know, and, and Jack Dorsey, is it, for, you know, Twitter. I mean, he's, Facebook is probably his primary antagonist, yeah. in fact. But anyhow, so he's got, this, this is his target. And basically, it, it's fairly well known that he's going to end up calling for them to be broken up as corporations, which, by the way, is the kind of thing we might well have heard on the more liberal and left side of the political spectrum. But but here's Hawley doing it. And one has to fit. And I asked myself, what's going on here? So I picked up the book to read it. And I actually found myself stunned. I mean, there was a point early in the book where I'm reading paragraphs. And I, I mean, this is pretty haunting. I read paragraphs that 
I could have written on the, from the left a very kind of populist, radical understanding of America. In fact, to put it more clearly, this one paragraph he wrote, which is telling of, of what, what's going on in his mind. Big tech, he says, looms as large as any corporate power in American history, as large as the railroads from a century back, as large as the steel trust and the oil trust and the money trust from the heights of the Gilded Age, which is, of course, late 19th century, all the way through to the 1920s. Its sway is prodigious. It's reaches wide. Then we get the important stuff. And yet, like those earlier monopolies, big tech's power is ultimately precarious because Americans are never long contented to be ruled over by barons. They agitate, they protest, they rebel against it. That is what is happening now and that is why there is cause for hope. And there's some other paragraphs like that, that go on from there. The point is, he's talking to Americans in a way that they will readily understand because right or left, Americans deep down understand that the United States was created in a revolution, sustained in a civil war, okay, which led to the emancipation of, of the slaves who played an, a, a major role themselves in liberating themselves at that time. And then, of course, the very grandparents and great-grandparents of folks reading this kind of stuff were involved in the labor movements and the farmers movements of the 1930s and enlisted and fought against fascism in World War II, that they that Americans don't like the thought they are ruled. They will not bow, they think, to rulers. Okay, They elect representatives. Hell, we don't have a king or a prime minister. We have a president, which comes from the verb to preside. That's our sense of what it means to be an American. And there was that fundamental promise at the time of the declaration, which was not at all universal, but remained a powerful promise that whether you were native born, okay, whether you were free or slave, whether you were newly arrived through the many generations of immigration, that promise was yours. All men are created equal, guaranteed the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. He's playing right into the sensibility of what it means to be an American and reminding Americans that to secure these things through the many generations of the American story, they had to fight for it. Or as one of my heroes, A. Philip Randolph, once said, you know, freedom is never given, and it's won. Well, Hawley on the right is all of a sudden hijacking that progressive, or as I like to say, this radical story of America. And I thought, whoa, this is, this is, this is scary. And then it dawned on me that as much as he has been close to, allied with, and supportive of Donald Trump, his real hero is probably Ronald Reagan. Because when Reagan, who began, by the way, as an FDR Democrat back in the 30s and the 40s, um, when Reagan, who then radically moved, dramatically, let me say, moved to the right during the 50s and eventually became the champion of what was called the new right. In fact, he himself and his, his team put together this that incredible coalition in the, in the 70s that led to his winning the presidency that included not only Christian evangelicals, religious conservatives and fundamentalists, but also free marketeers and libertarians who despise the idea of re government regulation. And yet he brought these two strange bedfellows together into one movement known as the New Right. And I thought, well, this here's Hawley. What's he doing? Well, one of the things that marked Reagan, or a couple of things, is first of all, he actually ran against the Republican Party establishment, Ronald Reagan, back in the 70s. And I mean, the Eastern Republican establishment of bankers and corporate bosses, they didn't like Reagan. To them, he seemed a real threat to the stability of the corporate order because he was talking about dramatically changing the social contract in America. But the other thing that Reagan did, which enabled him to bring that strange coalition of right 
right-wing Republicans and conservative evangelicals who traditionally had been Democrats, actually, was the fact that he hijacked history on a grand scale. He always talked about American history, always talked about the American promise, but not about the radicalism of the story, but more the kind of the that, that the founders were divinely inspired or that, you know, America, you know, had this forward march of progress without ever referring to the struggles along the way. But he literally took hold of American history in order to seem like he spoke for the American story, whereas the Democrats had turned their backs on that story. And they had by the time of Jimmy Carter. Here's Josh Hawley. He's running against the Republican establishment because all of a sudden he's rebelling from the free market arguments, the anti-government arguments, and he's calling for major government action to break up the big corporate giant, the big tech. And he says that this will help to re-empower working people because he's not just against monopoly. He's against, he's, he argues that monopoly has cost the working class in all its diversity, the wherewithal that they had developed over the many generations. And that in fact, when the nation was founded to be a you know a, a government of the common people, that big tech was undermining that kind of politics. So he's running against the standard Republican conservative arguments and against big business. In many ways, he's he's reproducing Ronald Reagan's campaigns for the presidency, and really even more effectively than Reagan, what he's doing is hijacking American history or trying to by talking about American history as actually a history of struggle that brought about, in quotes, progressive advances. So I thought, man, this guy is something. So when I finished, I, I mean, I had to write about it and thus the article. And so everyone thinks he's challenging challenging big tech, but actually he's challenging big tech, his own party. And in doing so, he's done it by way of this grabbing hold of history. He's actually challenging the left to give up its hostility to the story of America. Look, the left for too long has turned its back, whether it's liberals, you know, progressives or democratic socialists, we've for too long turned our back on the story that really has made America in its best, you know, look, there's good reason to run in, in ways from American history. I mean, slavery, okay, the marginalization of women, the mistreatment of immigrant generations. I mean, we can go on and on and on, okay, the racism, ethnocentrism, and so on. But the point is that if it wasn't for these struggles, we might still be back in the antebellum era. We might still be back in the Gilded Age, but we're not. American progress and social democracy has been under siege for 45 to 50 years. And our biggest problem is that we are failing to remind ourselves and our fellow Americans that the story of America itself is a radical story, not a right-wing and reactionary one that ultimately Josh Hawley would like to impose upon us. You know, Reagan glittered up his new right Trojan horse in the disguise of, you know, Americana and the founding fathers, and he co-opted that. I don't get why Josh Hawley thinks that his phony populist Trojan horse is in the guise of big tech. I guess I'm still trying to figure that out. Because everyone hates big tech. Even as people go onto Amazon to buy and they find it convenient to do that, everyone hates the power and the wealth of, of big tech. Look, Bernie Sanders ran and he talked about the billionaires, right? But really, when he talked about the billionaires, who is he talking about? He's talking about the big bankers and the big tech people. I'm saying this and I'm not doing this off the top of my head. I'm absolutely convinced that if Bernie had won the nomination in 2000 
2016, he would have won the general election over Trump. Because in, in 2016, this will bring us back to Trump. In 2016, Americans were asked, this was a major poll that I, I think I pulled the story out of the New York Times or somewhere. They were asked in 2015, and I think it was late 15, what kind of change does America need? And they had all these different adjectives. And most Americans said radical change. They didn't really want the likes of a Clinton. They didn't want Bush. So the offering was Bernie or Trump, but Bernie couldn't win the nomination because in quotes, the Clinton machine had it all wrapped up. I mean, it would have been tough for him to do that. But I think that year he could have won the presidency. I'm, I have little doubt about it. And by the way, I do think that if, had, if Trump was running for re-election without the pandemic, if that had never occurred, he probably would have won re-election. Since there was the pandemic, I think Bernie could have whipped his ass. But let's go back to Trump then, because you asked me, why, did, why does Holly go after big tech. Well, he's going after big tech because he's fairly confident that most Americans agree with him that they're dangerous, their data collection, and so on. The rise of big tech is parallel to the growth of gross inequalities in America. And even during the pandemic, the likes of big tech and the and, and the stockholders, but especially the, the, the men on top, those folks got all the richer. And all of a sudden, we started hearing the possibility that we might see our first trillionaire at the rate things are going. I mean, a trillionaire? Jesus Christ. So I think he was safe in assuming that he could really garner a kind of public interest behind that, that question. The other thing is, Donald Trump, when he ran in 2015 and 16 for the nomination, he ran against the, his own party, the Republican Party. Look, his remarks at the debates were utterly absurd. Okay. I mean, he was an embarrassment and an utterly disgusting figure. But along the way, he made certain kinds of remarks. He had no answer necessarily for them, but his America first ideology was telling working Americans, we're going to have to do something about these trade deals that they created. And he went on and on about the kinds of things that Republicans and Democrats alike had pursued for two to three or four decades that literally had led to the impoverishment of working people. You know, that work, the working class men in particular, but the working class, you say working class, and not too many people think you're talking white working class. No, the white working class is only part of the working class. The working class in America is black and brown and white, the whole range of, of shades. The fact is the working class since the early 70s has not seen a rise in their real wages. Can you imagine 50 years in which working people have literally barely held their own while the upper classes, and especially the very rich, have gotten... I don't even know how to describe it other than, than grossly richer. And what Hawley is doing here is he's trying to appeal not only to the likes of the folks who, you know, who stormed the Capitol, not only to the likes of those working people who have over the years shifted to the Republicans, but he's trying to reach out in many ways with his historical rhetoric and his attack on big tech to all of those folks who we're looking for some kind of dramatic change. Now, again, I'm not telling you Josh Hawley is a real populist. I'm not telling you he's really concerned about working people, because if he was, he'd have voted for a $15 minimum wage. He'd have lined up behind even the Joe Biden kinds of initiatives, which are not exactly yet on the scale of FDR, despite what the media is telling us. But Hawley is seriously dangerous, as you folks in Missouri can attest. And I'm hearing all this, and as a you know radio guy, I, I'm just also curious, and maybe this is a different subject, but why are we not including big media in this big tech breakup? You know, I have seen the consolidation of media. There are barely any jobs left in my field. Why are we not talking about that 
Josh Holly, phony populace. Because big media might get upset with him if he did that. And that's how you know that is disingenuous, right? Absolutely. Really- Look, I'm thrilled to talk to you and I've talked to other folks like you about all of this. Nobody called me from CNN or MSN. I mean, in spite of the fact they might have little affection for Josh Hawley, the fact is that this article, which is trying to tell people, look, Josh Hawley is not going to necessarily lose anything because of what he did in January. He's just not. Because the Trump folks are going to, if they don't reelect Trump, they're going to go to someone like Josh Hawley. Let's get into the ugly scenario of 2024, okay? So, so let's suppose that Trump doesn't run. Let's suppose he's incapacitated for some reason from running, right? But that his movement, if it's such a movement, it's still there, or at least the anger and, and you know, the sort of antagonisms that he's generated, uh, you know, racial and ethnic and religious and so on. Well, Hawley is primed to step in, basically. Look, I, I, as I said in the article, Hawley had really assumed that Trump was going to win the presidency until probably late in the game. And I think he was figuring, okay, when he runs for the presidency, Hawley, that is in 2028, it would be Trump who'd hand in the keys to the White House, having been reelected for a second term. Well, that's not going to happen necessarily, but that doesn't mean that Hawley's somehow damaged by that. I don't think so at all. I think it's quite possible that Hawley's now all the more sitting home when the Senate goes into recess, dreaming of 2024. You're listening to the KC Morning Show.